to the Meat and Potatoes podcast, a Silicon Slopes production. Meat and Potatoes shines a light on the people in Silicon Slopes to get things done. We explore how, why, and when they get those things done, and why their work is the meat and potatoes of Utah's tech and business community. Joining us from Rio, it looks like, we have Diogo Mija, who is the general partner at Album, which is a venture capital firm. How are you? Good. I, I wish I wasn't real. This is uh, wishful thinking and holding, you know, fast to Jesus here in the background. I'm, uh, I'm easily fooled. <laughs> but I wish. Uh, during this time, we can't travel. We, you know, try to go to the favorite places in our lives, and this is certainly one of mine. Is it even possible to be where you are in that, that background? You're like above. I don't think so. I think this is the product of a of a helicopter flight or something. So you could be in a helicopter. Okay. Yeah, there we go. A very static helicopter. All right. For those that don't know, what does a general partner at a venture capital fund do? And uh, and how do you do your job at Album? Yeah, so Album's a, is a venture fund here locally. Uh, we're, we're headquartered in Lehigh. Uh, we take pride of the fact that we do travel to do deals uh, pre-COVID. That would be uh, the case. Um, a, a general partner or a partner is someone that is actually actively looking for deals and, and doing deals. Uh, we also take pride in the fact that we um, we do what we call full stack VC. So we find our own deals, we diligence our own deals, we close and, and do our own deals. That, that is, you know, invest in companies. And, um, and from there, we nurture our own companies that we work with. So sit on boards and um, help, the, help the companies we work with in any way we can. All right. So that's a 30,000 foot view. So um, yep. we've got Ernie the entrepreneur, and he's got a really good idea, and he's built up a little something, has a little bit of a product, a little bit of a team. Um, but he needs money to scale or go on to the next step of his company's life. So how does that dance start to unfold as it pertains to album? Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is even in getting a hold of us, um, oftentimes entrepreneurs uh, have been resourceful as well as us being resourceful in getting a hold of the entrepreneurs. So, there is a company that shall remain nameless, but uh, every VC in the country was trying, not every VC, but a lot of VCs in the country were trying to get a hold of them. And we, we ultimately may have broken into their office in a, in a very uh, nice and polite way, but still kind of showed up out of nowhere uh, to talk to that entrepreneur because he wasn't responding to emails. Um, similarly, you know, getting a hold of us can uh, sometimes come across as difficult or whatever. Uh, we we are in the business of getting to know people. So it is in our best interest to get to know as many people as we can. But as you can imagine, there's a lot of people building awesome companies. And so it's just really hard to prioritize who we should get to know. So the, the easiest way to get in front of us is through a, a referral. Someone that we've known and worked with for, you know, some time uh, that can, you know, kind of get you in, if you will. So you guys recently did a, a rebrand and uh, you're nice enough to bring over a t-shirt for me. 
There we go. Looking, yeah. Um, so what was the what was the reasoning behind that, and uh, how's that gone for you? Yeah. So um, mid last year, more or less, we were faced with the fact that our brand didn't appropriately uh, reflect who we were, and and branding is really important for for us as a partnership. So if you look at um, the team, that being John uh, Mayfield, Sid Kremahuk, and uh, uh, Steve Hale and Lisa uh, Thomas, we we are a team that cares deeply about who we are, identity, and and other things related to brand. And so for us to do a rebrand was very natural to go from something that was very generic um, in name and by nature, Peak Ventures. I mean, Peak could be, you know, in Utah, you literally have a Peak everything. And uh, to something that really reflected who we are, we, we are a venture capital firm that is looking for the next wave of things that will define technology and culture. Um, and so as we looked at it, album came up as a, as a natural suitor, if you will, of what we do. We are building a collection of amazing companies. Um, and by the way, not every hit on, on an album is, is an absolute hit. Some become more popular than others. And with that said, we, we love all, all the tricks, you know, I dare say equally, uh, in spite of some being more successful than others. We love them all equally. They're all part of the album, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what are some of the companies um, in the last couple of years that are now part of the album that you guys have invested yeah. in? So uh, we're, we're well known for a couple of deals that we've done that, that have uh, kind of made disproportionate noise, if you will, uh, specifically in Podium. Uh, and Divi, but um, those are companies we invested in uh, way early on. Other companies that we have invested in that are really, you know, on track to do awesome things are companies like Filevine, um, which is software for law firms. Amazing founding history, amazing software. Um, but we've also done plenty of deals out of state. So, in fact, our, our most recent deals out of five deals we've done in this latest fund, Fund 3, um, which is a $75 million fund, um, three of them are out of state. So we have one in New York City, one in Austin, Texas, and one that is really kind of uh, uh, distributed, if you will. And so uh, although we are in Utah, we do end up doing deals outside of Utah. Some of those deals, that the latest ones um, – I, I can speak specifically to my latest two deals. One's called uh, AI Dungeon. The company's called Latitude, and they make, they're the makers of a game called AI Dungeon. We started right at about the same time as COVID-19, um, and up until March, we had more users. Uh, since then, COVID-19 has passed us in the number of, of people you know that they've touched. Um, but AI Dungeon is a text-based adventure game uh, be, you know, be all based on, on artificial intelligence. Pretty fascinating stuff. So every uh, venture fund uh, does it a little bit differently, but how do you guys uh, do your due diligence and ultimately land on a decision of yes or no? 
That's a very good question. In fact, it's it's a time uh, that we're really struggling with the whole you know COVID nineteen situation, and the reason is for us a deal is based on conviction. That's the the primary uh, reason we would get a deal done, and um, and that that makes it you know the whole environment right now uh, not being able to fully meet with entrepreneurs makes it really hard for us to get to know a founder appropriately. So because we are investing in such early stages of the venture cycle, if you will, as someone has started a business, and like you said, they, they normally just have a little sprout of, of what that business can be uh, or can become ultimately. Um, for us, it is uh, for us it is really, really hard to get to know people right now. Uh, but our, our investment thesis surrounds conviction so once we get to know people and get to know their business get to know the market we start to build a thesis around uh why we should invest and ultimately it comes down to uh like you said a yes or no decision but that whole decision is predicated on how convicted we feel about uh about the the data set that we have and it's um it's really quite something because Conviction is, you, you can think about it as a, as a grayscale. And once you reach a certain point of that grayscale, you can no longer uh, deny that you have conviction, but it still takes a full you know, step forward to say, oh my goodness, like I am a believer. I am moving forward on this. Uh, and we, we make sure we stamp our name in every deal we do. So, you know, there is very strong partner deal association. Um, and, and what that leads to is a high threshold to get a deal done. So each, each of me, Sid and John only do two to three deals a year, uh, that keeps us very active in the companies that we invest in. So we, you know, there's no, um, half attention, if you will, we, we are fully committed to the companies we invest in. Uh, And with that, it means, you know, we're not the most pretty much anything, uh, in in venture we're not trying to do a lot of deals we're not trying to do a lot of dollars we're we're, we're really not spreading our investment uh, as much as as uh, a lot of venture funds do what we're looking for is to have the best returns we are looking for you know companies that will produce outsized returns uh, consistently so um yeah two to three deals a year per partner means we're saying mostly no's and getting to that conviction on the grayscale um, with certain infrequency. So, you know, you break down even a little bit more um, certain VCs, you know, value the, the team and the person over the math and uh, the weighted cost of capital and all those, those types of things. Where do you lie? And, yeah, I, I like to say, Garrett, there are uh, VC love languages. Uh, if, if anyone's read the, the book that my wife made me read, the, the love languages book or whatever. Uh, in fact, she, she gave me an annotated copy uh, one time, and I left in a plane. Uh, That's <laughs> your language right there. Was, was exactly. It was so bad. My goodness. But, but VCs have love languages. Some love traction. Uh, as evidenced by revenue, some love user metrics, uh, so churn and other things. Uh, 
some love, you know, founding teams and strong founding stories. Um, I would say because we are such generalists in the early stage, we, we stay very, very focused on uh, the, the three things that make a, make a venture thrive, in our opinion, which are the team. Are they well positioned? Do they come from a, either a relevant background or what makes them uniquely qualified to go conquer this, uh, this thing that they're trying to conquer? Um, sometimes traction speaks volumes to us. Other times traction doesn't matter. The truth is you can find – so traction for the hack of traction is not what we look for. We look for uh, traction that can be replicated, if you will. So sometimes you'll find companies that have gotten to that million to two million revenue – but you realize that their customer base is really hard to replicate, and, and that's not what we're looking for. Uh, we're looking for companies that will be scalable in the long run, which takes me to markets. You know, We look at markets and, and think of trends that, that make sense to, to really kind of push forward and, um, and things that are pulling forward, if you will. Are you being pulled by the market? Is the market adopting your product at a rate that, is just unprecedented. One of the companies I, I work with, um, incidentally, a company out of Orlando, uh, Florida, they, which I miss visiting them, you know, nice and warm and just beautiful weather, except for July. July is a little too hot. But if the, this company in Florida, uh, they are, they literally don't have to sell. They, the product sells itself. Um, they, they do close the deals, if you will. So I, I took uh, the CEO one time to dinner with a decision maker in a very large body. I mean, this is a, call it a $300,000 a year type of account, maybe $200,000 a year type of account. And, uh, and we went to dinner when the CEO was visiting here locally. And, and by the end of dinner, the, the CEO was, was, you know, closed. Like he was done. He was ready to go. And so he looks at this, this uh well the decision maker the decision maker looks at the ceo and says okay so how do i sign up and this guy goes well go to our website and and for about five minutes i was really turned down by that i'm like oh gosh like you just missed the chance to boom close this close the sale and and uh but it it didn't matter because you know the product had such a pull that this this decision maker went online, signed up for an account, and you know they're they're happy customers now. Uh, but really, really interesting when the market starts to pull you. So yeah. those are the things we look for. Those are kind of our love languages, if you will. So what happens when you have conviction, and your other partners have maybe half as much conviction? Garrett, that happens all the time. As a as a full disclaimer, I'll tell a story where I didn't have conviction and they did. The company was called Baller TV. Um, this is a Pasadena-based company, and uh, as as you know, I grew up in Brazil um, for for you know I'd say most of my life to this point, and um, and as you know, as as a Brazilian, I don't understand the world of amateur sports. With all due respect to you, Garrett, being a, a huge sports fan that I know you are, um, I look at amateur sports and I'm like, so so I don't really get professional sports other than soccer. Sincerely, I don't get football. I'm I'm the person who, you know, didn't know who 
uh, Steve Young was. But anyway, so this deal comes in, and, and they're broadcasting amateur sports with 1099 workers. And I'm scratching my head going, what the heck? Like, you know, you're, you're doing what? You're broadcasting sports that no one wants to see, paying people that are crappy at broadcasting it. Wow. That, that is a recipe for disaster. The, the nice thing about how we are set up is we are truly set up to take non-conventional or non-traditional, non-consensus bets. Um, if you are investing in Uber, when Uber is an $80 billion company, you're just following the consensus. There's no money to be made in investing in consensus. So, so we're looking for bets that are non-consensus and yet that are right. And in the case of Baller, it's too early to call them they're right, but um, especially given COVID situation, shut down all their games. With that said, I've never been more excited for them because grandma, grandpa, uncles and aunts and parents can't watch their kids playing soccer next time they'll be playing soccer. Um, massive volleyball tournaments that, you know, have been crazily affected. And yet, you know, late summer things are going to go on. Late summer sports will happen without an audience. And if they do happen without an audience, you need something like Baller to broadcast it. So, you know, huge shout out to my partners who believed in it when I didn't. And and we ha we get to have very spirited conversations about, you know, why this is an idiotic thing to do. Um, oftentimes they'll, they tell me and oftentimes I tell them and oftentimes we're all wrong. Um, what provides us with awesome decision making is the fact that we can psychologically safely challenge each other. So we, we constantly challenge each other on every assumption that we make. Uh, and that leads to better decision making. So when, when this, you know, deal happened, it wasn't happening due to lack of awareness of all the problems with it, but it was because of the belief the other partners had in the company, because literally I had challenged every single uh, aspect of the, the business working. I had, I had challenged, will anyone watch it? Will anyone want to broadcast it? Will people actually pay for this content? How are we going to store this content? It sounds crazy, so on and so forth. So uh, decision-making relies on the ability to say, what are the non-consensus bets that could be good, bets that could be right? What are those? Yeah. So how does a kid from Belo Horizonte uh, end up uh, a venture capitalist? Yeah, uh, my story is very unusual. You and I have chatted about it a little bit. I, I grew up in Belo Horizonte, like you pointed out, um, and, and always sold, bought and sold stuff. Um, so it started probably when I was 12 or so, and I started selling some homemade treats at school. Um, probably sold maybe $300 worth in a year of homemade treats, and, and that's in dollars. So if you, if you convert, it's actually not that little money. Uh, once you convert to the you know very uh, beaten up Brazilian hail at this point. Um, so started doing that, then started importing crap from Paraguay, uh, 
the the biggest item there was this this MP3 player CD player, um, and and imported probably a hundred of those uh, over a few years. Um, then I had a friend coming to visit from the U.S. who brought a PlayStation Three. I, I asked her to bring a PlayStation Three, and I was going to sell, but it ultimately got robbed at gunpoint. Um, it was pretty pretty dire situation. Um, lost that and my, you know, along with it, my life savings, if you will. Um, but but I always had a knack for buying and selling like stuff and and figuring stuff out. And literally no shame in getting crap done. So, you know, from selling at door malls and, and malls doors, is that the right way to say it? Yeah, like outside of the mall because they wouldn't let me, you know, sell inside the mall, but right outside the mall in the, uh, you know, absolutely zero shame in approaching complete strangers and offering, you know, goods, if you will. Um, so at some point, you know, due to crazy, you know, superior works that know what they're doing, I showed up to BYU. Um, and and while at BYU, I ended up joining a startup, ultimately started a company. Both of those were, you know, acquired and um, started investing here in the in the angel community. Uh, I was working with a, a guy who's has been a prolific angel uh, and a mentor to me. Uh, and and for a while there, we, we invested together, if you will. I, um, I, I did a lot of diligence on deals and, and started working with companies. And, and after some time, uh, got to know at the time the Peak Ventures guys, which ultimately became, uh, you know, the partnership we have today. So um, very unusual path. And, and that's some general commentary on, on venture capital. Most folks make their way into venture through very unconventional paths. Those that come through the conventional paths tend not to stay because it is such a weird game, if you will, a weird, uh, it's a very different sport for sure. Yeah. Chances of, you know, a kid from Brazil becoming a a venture capitalist in America are probably in one in the billions. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know about that, but, we got lucky and worked our butt off. Yeah. So, um, so you you see hundreds of deals a year. Uh, you know, you talk probably all day, where you're looking at, you know, financials and and those types of things. Um, so you've got like the soft side of like understanding people and their habits and and quirks, and then you have the actual data and, and things like that. What's the worst part? of being a VC and what's the best part just for you personally? So for me, the worst part is the amount of people we don't get to work with. Um, There are deals that we come very, very close to doing and ended up not doing. And you always kind of regret a little bit because you're, you're like, you know, um, by the way, I'm under no impression that I could have helped a certain company. That's not what it is. Uh, the entrepreneurs are the ones doing all the work and we're very cognizant of that. Um, but, but we create such bonds with the people we work with that it's almost like I, I'd like to work with everyone. 
I love everyone and, and just love humans in general. So uh, I'm always worried about what we're missing out when not working with, you know, folks uh, and the amount of no's that we have to say. It is somewhat heart wrenching because because you you know you're limiting your deal flow to doing two to three deals a year. Uh, by definition, you're saying you know maybe a hundred to one hundred and fifty no's a year, um, and it is freaking hard. It is like really really hard. the The favorite part of of what I do is is the the complete opposite of that is seeing how individuals grow and transform this themselves through the entrepreneurship process. Um, CEOs that, you know, when, when they first come in, they look like scared rabbits and, and, you know, and then they're, you know, six months later, they're, they're roaring lions. And it's not necessarily because of performance, but it's because there's something that um, builds within you through entrepreneurship. Um, I, I experienced something like that when I was 14 and my parents decided that I had to learn English, uh, and in a, a medium class, you know, medium class family in Brazil has no chances of sending their kids to learn English. Like it just doesn't happen. But my aunt had a roommate who who said that her parents would be willing to host me for you know for three months, and and we thought why not do that in the summer? That sounds great. Well, summer is November through February, so. I showed up to Sugar City, Idaho in November, and uh, it was the coldest thing I've ever experienced. I had ever experienced in my life, and probably is to this day, by the way, um, not not knowing any English at age 14. And, and it just so happened that it was my aunt's roommate's parents' friends that were going to host me. So there was a little misunderstanding, miscommunication of who it was. But it was it was an amazing experience from the sense that literally I was very small. I was a, a very short kid. I only grew when I was like 18 or so. So uh, in my LDS mission, I was I was still growing, which is kind of funny. Um, but but I was very small. I didn't speak the language, and I'm going to Sugar Salem High School, and um, it was such a weird experience because I was completely unfit for that and and it turned me from um you know a, a medium class normal kid from brazil who, who grew up playing a lot on the street so somewhat street smart but when i get to uh sugar I don't know anyone. I, I don't know anything. I don't know the language. So there was some hardiness that had to be built. And, and that's when confidence, if you will, started coming from within. There was zero external validation. Um, I don't think I had come that close to a cow before in my life. You know, I'm from a 5 million people city. And, you know, we're, we're working on the field. We're feeding cattle. And it was, it was just very very unique experience uh which i define as as one of my most life transformative experiences not unlike you know the first three to six months of a new venture when you see that transformation um in an entrepreneur when they go from you know i'm gonna conquer the world to i have no idea what's going on 
and I must find this this confidence from within rather for, than from people saying, congrats, go do it. It's really easy to validate entrepreneurial dream, dreams. It's really hard when you're, you know, deep in that trough of, of uh, anguish that you can get when, when things just look so bleak and hard. So, um, yeah, that's what I would say. Like watching the transformation within people is an amazing uh, thing to do. And you get to do that firsthand as a VC, just, you, you know, playing their psychologist at times. There's not much you can do for them, but oftentimes they'll call, you know, even late at night and, and you're going to have a sincere chat about, you know, um, how, how your perspective of things, you know, looks today. So, yeah, long answer. Sorry about that. Oh, very well put and a uh, yeah, great story. Idaho in the winter will... Uh... Bolster it was so cold. So I, I had borrowed a pair of snow pants from my grandma, and that was literally the only snow equipment that I brought with me. It was so darn cold. I still remember those pants, by the way. I'll find a picture and you can put it on here if you want. But it's uh, it was like they're red and blue. They're really ugly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, that's that's a good story. Um, all right. So how has uh, COVID-19 affected the private and, and venture markets from a macro level? Because um, I assume you're looking at all of that. And then, you know, real briefly on your guys' yeah. micro Yeah, level. so, so um, Garrett, COVID-19 sucks. Let's establish that. Um, I hate it with a passion. Um, but we are big believers that innovations counter cyclical. So when everything else is going to crapper, we're looking at the market going, Hmm, there are unique opportunities that will come out of this, whether it's because people are forced, uh, meaning, you know, financially distressed companies, uh, finally give the employee that last push they needed to jump ship and go and build something on their own. That happens. Um, so, you know, just looking at data, new company formation was up 22% in the 2008 crisis. Um, 22%, that is a lot. That is, a, a, you know, a really significant jump in the innovation economy, if you will, um, from a company formation perspective. The other thing is companies in general go from exploiting technologies that have already been around uh, to exploring new technologies and new things uh, because the opportunity cost of chasing after uh, of chasing after what has been exploitable in the past and is less profitable now has decreased. You're going. Yeah, what we used to do is not working as well. Let's try something else. So um, we are big believers that, that the downturn, the well, first, COVID itself poses an interesting new set of challenges and questions. We are doing this podcast over Zoom, even though we're only, you know, 15 miles apart, which feels silly, right? Uh, but but at the same time, it's... Um, it is what we must do right now. So, so there is a new constraint 
that forces innovation. And then the economic downturn that has come with COVID may mean, you know, uh, these forces of, of the innovation economy uh, being counter-cyclical actually coming to pass. So um, we, we are really excited might be the wrong word, but maybe it is the word I'm going to use here. We're really excited to see what comes out of this and what entrepreneurs thrive in spite of this environment, which by the way, we are seeing in the portfolio. There are companies that have cut their adoption cycle in months just from people saying, oh my goodness, I can no longer function without this product. Uh, this is a plug for all the mobile device management solutions out there and, and all of the, the remote uh, solutions, all the security solutions, things that are thriving under this environment. So, um, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely going to be some some silver linings and uh, there will obviously be a lot of papers and books written about it, but you'll be able to experience it firsthand over the next year too. Well, we experience this secondhand. Uh, entrepreneurship is the drug we're addicted to and we, we secondhand smoke it all day long. Uh, by no means we, you know, we're under the impression that we do anything. The entrepreneurs are doing all the work and uh, yeah, we love and admire them. So you love secondhand smoke. That's exactly right on entrepreneurship. <laughs> My wife banned it firsthand. Let's just say that. <laughs> um, all right. So um, you guys, um, you know, on a local level, there's probably enough data at this point. Are you guys seeing more folks coming to you uh, or less than maybe say three months ago? I would like to say we're seeing more on the local level. We're not. Um, well, I'll just speak for my own inbox, if you will. Um, I feel like folks, well, first of all, once you have the first shock of COVID during March, we, we spent some time that we owed to our portfolio companies with them. We had to be with them. We had to truly put the time to help diagnose, you know, how, how bad the situation was and how bad it could get for them. Uh, so, so that's what we spent a lot of time doing. Um, now I would say we're at a point where we're looking at the at new deals, um, but maybe entrepreneurs may have kind of shied away. We are seeing a lot of movement out of state. So because COVID has impacted, you know, the world in general, it's really interesting what it has done with Silicon Valley specifically, which prided itself in, you know, you, you go to, you go to Sand Hill Road once and you can hit 20 VCs. Well, uh, now you go to Zoom and you can hit 20 VCs. You don't have to go to Sand Hill Road. So it, it becomes very, very interesting in that sense that we are um, we're experiencing more out-of-state deals than, than I think we, we had in the past um, through our referral network. Um, but we are looking at deals in Utah. Uh, it it may have slowed, it may have slowed things down just as people, as Sid likes to put it, he says, you know, the bomb exploded and there's still dust in the air. It's as simple as that. Everyone's kind of, you know, brushing their faces and looking, oh, wow, like where, uh, where do things sit right now? Yeah. But I would encourage, you know, entrepreneurs right now, uh, 
it's a good time to, to go after the innovation economy. Uh, either whether that's by, you know, your own option or, or because you're forced into it or, or whatever it might be. It's a, it's a really interesting time in the history of the world. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, this has been very informative and, uh, I've only been asking you for a year to come on the podcast, so I'm glad <laughs> we could finally do Garrett, it. Garrett, it took a pandemic to get this together, my friend. Thank you so much. Appreciate you having me. You bet. Thank you, Diogo. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll circle back in a year and see where we were right and where we were wrong. <laughs> Thanks, brother. Take That's care. That's fair. All right. Sounds good.